Welcome to CTO Think, a podcast about leadership, product development, and tech decisions between two recovering chief technology officers. Here are your hosts, Don Vandemark and Randy Burgess. Hey, Randy, what are you doing this week? Okay, let's see. This week was going back to our second or third episode. We talked about tech debt. When to take time sure. on that? So this was a tech debt week. Still working on it. I'm working on with a client and their code base, and we've had a pause with the API project because the API provider, we started, I guess, pushing a volume of things to them that they had not been prepared for, um, which their documentation didn't warn us not to do. So now we're waiting on them to get back to us on some of the stuff we can send them. Um, or for them to make adjustments. And so in the meantime, I've been working on a couple of things related to this code base was written back in the early Ruby 3, two days. So there are some um, implementations of things that have, I guess, standardized or a library in Rails has come up to make it a better process. And I'm kind of converting old code into the more updated stuff. This will help them out if, it, one, if I'm doing maintenance on it, my team is doing maintenance on it, or if they have someone else that comes in to do it and they can look at a more modern version of this code. So mainly that um, and a couple of kind of sales-related things that I've been working on of, you know, looking at talking to different clients and different things. But other than that, pretty low key week. What about you? So over the weekend was the 10th uh, Florida Drupal camp. So Mm. this was um, a camp where anywhere over the 10 years, we've had anywhere from roughly 100 to roughly 300 people come from across the state, across the country. We even had some come from out of country to Orlando um, to talk about all things Drupal. Um, Mm -hmm. it, it, Drupal is, is, um, a PHP content management system that I got involved with about 10 and a half years ago. That's how we met, Um, kind of. it, It is, it is absolutely. It's something that I, I've been to all 10. Um, I've been a volunteer at nine of the 10, yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe the 10th, uh, that, that would be the first one I'm trying to remember back, maybe all 10. Um, it's something we're very proud of. It's one of the larger ones in, in the United States. It's, it's one of the better ones because who doesn't want to come to Florida in February? <laughs> um, so it, it's certainly, um, certainly something we're real proud of. So had, had lots of old friends that, I see once a year um, at this thing. So it was a good weekend. Um, How's the, the adoption of Drupal is it Drupal eight they're in now. It's Drupal eight. They're in now. Um, Wow. I could, I could, I could go down a rabbit hole here. So the, uh, the adoption of Drupal eight is pretty good. There is some resistance because, Drupal 8 was probably a major step towards Drupal being slightly more enterprise-y and slightly less small Mm -hmm. sighty. And the the main goal of Drupal 8 was to make it um, headless almost to where you could 
pull all different kinds of components in as opposed to it being a website that you plug components into. It's now a batch of components, one of which may be a website and it may not be, you may, you can do other things with it. So, um, the, the adoption is slow. Um, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the sessions was about, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, you need to get on it because Drupal nine is just another couple years away. Yes. And if you don't if you don't stay up with the cycles, yeah, your your Drupal seven sites will no longer be upgradable to some extent if you leave it behind too much. Correct, and and one of the things they they did do to improve that whole upgrade process was. Before in the in the previous versions of Drupal, you the the patches came when they came. The yeah. the point versions came when they came. They now have very set. Every six months, you're getting another point release. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something you can plan for. It's something that all the module um, owners and collaborators can plan for, so that they can be on top of it. That that's a good move. Yeah, it it helps. It helps keep those modules um, healthy, um, and, and because in the end, if the modules aren't being maintained, then they're going to fall out. Yeah, um, and that's probably a good thing anyway if they're not being maintained. So, like I said, I can go down a rabbit hole there, but that's that's <laughs> generally the health of it. Um, but it it's it's still going strong. It's just a question of does it still serve its original purpose, and that is a topic of high debate within the community. <laughs> oh yeah. We can debate <laughs> we can debate that another day. <laughs> so so let's talk this week. This um at, at Aspire EDU we we brought on a, a new developer um yeah. and we we went through our our process to evaluate and and figure out whether he was a good fit. Um and and I know that you've had to do the same as well. One thing, I, so, so what I want to talk about is in general, how do you identify um, who to bring on board? And and that probably is a different answer for the different levels of people you're looking at. But yeah. um, I know one partic- particular hot topic within the developer hiring community is about the use of um, coding tests um, yep. and, and things like that. So um give me your 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 general thoughts on on all those and, and let's go down that rabbit hole a bit so well well let's reveal to the listener that I left out something on what I did this week which was um I talked to a company that or I reached out to a company that had advertised a developer senior de- developer position mainly because of the subject matter that they work in is something that I did about 10 years ago and I don't work in that space anymore, but I was like, this is interesting. This is someone is monetizing um, the space that or around the space that I was in from a technology standpoint and they need someone to help them enhance. So I reached out and had a really good phone conversation with the founder of the business and The role, as described to me, was tech lead, senior dev. We need someone that can come in and help us ramp up our operations, work with an existing dev, um, all that good stuff. And then I got an email about maybe a day later, a couple hours later, 
asking me to take a coding quiz. And instantly I was like, we just like, I, my, my whole idea of taking this role went down the drain for a large part because that was posed to me. So, and why, why is that? Because, and I'm just going to be frank about it for the, for a leadership tech, for a management or a leadership role, doing coding puzzles is a bit beneath what I've been working on because I think there's a, there's two reasons for that. One, I feel like I've worked my way to a certain point um, where I don't need to do little code puzzles to prove what I can do. And two, I have a body of work that really speaks to, can this person develop, build, lead? And being having to go through an audition at a, at, that a junior dev takes kind of, to me, alters the entire process. And I think it's lazy hiring, frankly, um, at least at the management level, at a senior dev level. I think it's lazy hiring and... I don't, I just don't subscribe. I don't make people do those tests. I wouldn't even make a junior do a puzzle because there's a number of reasons that we can get into, but I don't think it's a good management technique to hire people um, at all in that regard. So, so let's, let's talk, let's take this first. What, what is, if you can give me three, what are your what are your top three ways of evaluating, we'll say, a senior dev or or a tech leader? So I look at the body of work they have that they advertise that they have done, and I take the time if I if I look at someone's resume, if I have been if someone refers them to me, I look at what do they say they have built and done. Then I take that very seriously because that will tell me. Has this person um, been in positions that do the kind of projects at the scale I need? So if I'm hiring someone for an enterprise-type company, a big company, and everything they've done is startups, that's uh, an indicator that, okay, there's a difference between how a startup builds things and how a big enterprise company builds things. And flipped around, someone that comes only from a big company that has lots of resources and big teams and people slicing up roles. A startup needs developers that do one or like do a number of different things on a build. Can't just say, well, who's the CSS person for this? It's like, it's you because this is a small company. So I look at the, I look at their resume and I don't really look at code. Like everyone says, give me your GitHub repo. Like, GitHub repos are dumping grounds for script. And I don't expect people to or keep that organized as a resume. Right. So I don't I don't look at GitHub unless they point me to a repo that says this is a project that I think represents my code well. But so to kind of rewind, I ask the person to say, give me examples of projects you've worked on with the understanding that if they worked for a company, they can't just show me that company's code. If you're showing me you're a company you worked for's code, then that means you may show another person my code. Right. <laughs> and I don't want that. So right. it's a like the idea is that I'm gonna be talking to this person 
at great length about their projects. And that's where we will find out, do you know, like how, what are the challenges you faced in that project? What did you get done? But making them do fizz buzz or some kind of puzzle that's not, that's not anywhere near what they do doesn't suffi- doesn't give me that same information. So that's one way. So I, I actually heard two ways there. One, you want you want to have you want your their resume, their their body of work in front of you with maybe some code examples of of open source stuff they've done or side project stuff they've done, but not necessarily if they um, have them. Yeah. If they have them. If and some don't. And some don't. And then the second thing you're going to look at is, is you're going to have probably in-depth conversations around those things yes. to where you're going to be able to figure out, is this resume legit or is it just a bunch of names thrown on paper and he was really a minor part of all this? Yeah. Um, and and that's that's two great ways of doing it. That's more for, for how would how would that differ for a junior dev? What would you do differently for somebody who doesn't have a great body of work is just coming into it, um, has only had one minor job in it, things like that. Well, I don't, if it's a junior person, if a person has not been able to build things and to show that they are to show what they've done in the past, then a test of some kind to show technical aptitude is warranted. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I, but I, but I think that you have to understand that a junior dev or a green, I call them green level, a green level or junior dev in an audition process of puzzles and challenges is a, is something that if you don't understand that there's a deep level of anxiety that is also thrown into that mix, then you are not going to judge that person accurately necessarily. And I can like, I know that there are like, if I don't want to hire someone that spent the last three weeks practicing coding tests and that's not, cause that doesn't mean much. Um, right. I like, okay, great. You read the 101 best um, code quizzes and interviews book and then and aced it. <laughs> That's not the kind of work I'm going to give you. So, but going back to the real question, how do you judge someone that doesn't have a body of work? I, I'm going to say I would, if I'm trying to hire a green level person or a junior dev, uh, a junior dev should have some kind of work. Um, they're, if they're, if they don't have any work at all, then they're green. That means they're starting from scratch. And that means I'm hiring someone and I have to know that they understand a basic level of coding and debugging and stuff like that. In that case, I'm fine to hand them a bit of code um, as a challenge. But at that point, like I, that's about it. Like I'm not going to ask a senior dev who has proven work and has been employed um, to do to jump through those same hoops because. Well, I just don't think that it will, it's an indicator of, are they good on the spot of coding on the spot? And that's not the kind of person I plan to hire. I plan to hire, I plan to hire someone that would tell me doing coding puzzles is not an effective use of any developer's time whatsoever. (laughs) That's the kind of person I want to hire anyway. So the way we, uh, the way we approach it 
uh, at Aspire Edu, and and we're we're fortunate that we've been able to do this every time because this will not work um, in every scenario. But when it does, we feel it's effective. Um, we we ha- we do the, the the standard talking to and and walking through their experience, their resume, and yep. projects they've done. Everything we've talked about. The the final thing we'll do is we won't do necessarily a test. But what we'll do is we'll offer um, to pay them to come in, yeah. spend a few hours reviewing our code base, give them one of the minor issues that we've got in our issue queue of things to do, and then solve it and pay them to do all that. Yeah. Um, and that that gets them familiar with our system that gets them familiar with the other developers because they're going to have to be talking to them to figure out how everything works um and it gives them a taste of what our system looks like so we feel that's a great way for us to get a feel of of them and for them to get a feel of us um that does not work everywhere somebody who's working a full-time job somewhere else probably can't devote the time needed to make Boom. that happen. Yep. Um, so let me, it, let me ask, so let's bring that up because here, this is a philosophy thing for me about who you want to hire. Now I'm not saying that everyone that's unemployed is unemployed because they're a bad developer. That is not the statement I'm trying to make here. But if you are a company trying to bring on the best developers you can, it's most likely that a good crop of developers are people that are gainfully employed, that have high demand for their services, that may not like where they are, but they're not just going to like walk out the door and then have no, no just kind of go looking for a gig. That's not the majority of great developers. The majority of exceptional great developers are employed and working because their employers value them or need that work done. And so they're getting stuff done. And so you have to consider whether if the only part of the tech pool you're looking at are unemployed people, are you missing out on the exceptional devs um, in terms of volume and, and the people you're interviewing? And to the point you just made, if I go into work and put in you know, eight hours, 10 hours, four hours, whatever, and work on code that I have to concentrate on to get paid. And then I turn around and have to do someone else's project to just prove I can code. Where does that person have the incentive to put up with your process? Because I guess you're assuming your job is that great and they really want to work for you that bad. But yeah, I don't, and that's, that's I don't fair. Think that I don't think that's true. I just don't think it works that way. That's fair. And, and we, like I said, we've been fortunate. Um, we've hired freelancers, um, who, who can work as part of their freelance schedule. Um, we've hired job transitioners. So people who are changing from, um, something else into the development world. Yeah. So they, 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 they've already kind of made the idea that they want to make that change. Um, it, it, we have not come across it yet, um, where we're trying to hire someone 
that is fully employed somewhere else. Um, I don't think that's because we're not looking for them. I think it's just circumstance. Yeah. Um, we certainly have approached others, uh, but they never got to that final part. And, and our discussion of that piece of the process never came, came out. So that certainly wasn't the piece that kept it from happening. Um, so you're right in that it only works for a certain number of people and a certain slice of, of the population, but we like doing it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. and where we can, we're going to do it that way. Well, I, I, I think the whole idea of take home projects and, um, or working on consulting a short freelancing gig as part of a company's work, like that stuff is not the same to me as a, as a quiz or a code exam kind of thing. Those are completely different. Um, when I worked at, um, DevMind software, we brought in people and they paired with other developers and that was how we, they would sit down and they, we did not put them in into an, like you're putting the, this person into an environment that they aren't comfortable in your office. And then you're putting them under the gun to have to immediately meet someone they've never met and then start talking about code, which are not bad scenarios to see. Can this person talk to other random people? But what we don't do is say, all right, here's someone else's laptop. Here's someone else's, um, how they've set up their interface, their screen. Now do a high pressure kind of project while we look over your shoulder. That's not what we ever did. And I, I can't think of anyone, if, if the, if the idea of the screening process is to know, can you code? Not, not a single person failed. Everyone that could not code or was revealed in the pairing interview process. Like it, it became very clear, very quick. This person is not just anxiety. They really don't know how to do at the level of development that DevMind did. And, right. and then we had the people that it was like, this is a shining star and this person is getting hired as fast as we possibly can. So that process worked great, but we did not hand that person FizzBuzz or linked lists or sorting bubble quizzes to say, should you talk to us anymore? And yes, it takes more time, but I, that's, I think it gets into one of my points about the coding is that I feel like it's lazy recruiting on the behalf of a manager who wants to filter out everybody to have the chance to speak with them. And, right. and, Maybe you're so busy that you th- can't, you kind of put hiring quality people at a lower priority. But I feel that if you're a manager, the people on your team and the quality of like them bringing them in and having terrific people on your team allows you to spend more time focused on hiring. And instead of trying to having to coach up people because your hiring process is only giving you such a small number of people that are high quality. And so I, I do subscribe to the way that you did it, but what I can't get into is, Hey, senior dev, take a quiz, just like we would give a junior dev and prove that you can do that little bit of code just to get into the next level of you're worthy to talk to us. Because I just don't think 
I, I know there are devs that will go through that those hoops, but I'm they're going to do it for Google or Facebook. They're not going to do that for your company um, if they have actually like I've proved I've been able to do this stuff. And I have I, it's interesting because I this subject came up. There's a link that's out there. I'll put this in the show notes. It's about. Um, it came up on GitHub. There's a number of companies that are have put their names on it, and it's about companies that don't whiteboard, companies that don't um, make people do whiteboarding type of tests as part of their interview process. Sure. And there's two, like I know DevMind signed up for it, and then there's some other companies in Chicago that I saw were on there because I know they don't do that. But um, amongst some of my former coworkers that I talked to. There's one person that was like, this is a BS post. There's nothing wrong with whiteboarding. Like, we've done it before. Um, and I'll look at all these big name companies that do whiteboarding as part of their, of their process. And all I can say is if you look at Google and Facebook and Twitter or whatever and try to compare those firms to everyone, like to the other firms that are hiring, I think you have confused the demand for the jobs in, of that company versus your own. Um, sure. Because if you want great people for a business that is not as proven as like Google and Apple can get away with it. They have, they may have proven their product to the market and they make revenues. If you're not in that boat or you're, you don't have a reputation you are possibly filtering out people that are like, well, you're not Apple. I'm not going to go through that process. You're not that type of company. Um, so it's it's interesting that now if you look on that on this GitHub um, post that people that was written up, there is a huge number of companies that are using the fact that they don't hire that way as a competitive mechanism to get better candidates. So that right. should tell you a little bit about what the discussion in the market is doing um, to some extent. Well, sure. So let me let me let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Sure. Um, you through, throughout this discussion, one of the main points you're making that I'm hearing is you're saying you're not Apple, you're not Google, you're not Facebook. Therefore, you can't expect people the, the prospective developers to jump through those hoops. The corollary of that is if you are Apple, if you are Facebook, if you are Google, a test, a quiz is a perfectly fine measure of development ability. Are you making that statement or are you just allowing it because of who they are? I'm saying they can, no, I'm, I'm not saying it's a good indicator. I'm saying they can get away with it. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I don't, okay. Like, there's no doubt that companies like Facebook and Google um, have terrific developers. I mean, you don't you don't make the products they do. Whether you can debate whether the products themselves are good for people and society, that's a different argument. But you, there's no doubt that the scale that they are able to produce and that their products run takes a lot of engineering brain power. Um, but that's but you can get a lot of brain power because you can pay a lot of money and you can set up and you can pay for an environment that makes it attractive for those folks. Even if you make them jump through hoops, like a coding quiz to get there, 
people will do a lot when you have all these other attributes to sell um, as an sure. employer. So, yeah, I am not saying that I think that those steps are are effective for them. Um, and there's some questions about whether they still hire the same caliber of engineer that they used to. But I think that they can get away with it because of everything else they have to offer. I don't think that all companies do that, have the ability to do that. Well, all right. So we have it on tape <laughs> that you think you know better than Amazon, Facebook, <laughs> Google. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what will come out of this. If anybody, like anyone that would pull that out would say, yeah, you think you can hire better than Amazon, prove it. And the, the truth is, yeah, give me the assets and the, the give me all of the um, resources that they'd have. And then I'll definitely put that to the test. But I don't have that. I don't have the ability to, to, tell, to hire someone and say, I can give you the security, the tools, the, the prospects of future growth. I can't sell that to anybody as part of my employment. I, sure. I have to find I have to find that for a small company that I hire for. I have to find that perfect person that can do a number of tasks well, and I really need them to be experienced in doing it. I need them to have proven that they can deal with with deadlines and deal with use, changing user requests and requ- business requirements that don't always make sense. And I need to find out that they can do that, and I don't need to filter them out with a quiz that says, under pressure, can you do bubble sorting under pressure under pressure can you do a quiz that i just found in a book on page 30 and i'm throwing it out there against the wall for you to solve and then i mean half the time i don't think that the people that that give the the test actually could do them themselves but that's just my guess Um, or could do them optimum optimally yeah exactly now so Good. What what I what I'm seeing is I I it, because I'm I've been doing a lot of work in JavaScript lately and been reading a lot of articles on Medium that sort of thing. That's the kind of articles that are filtering through on Medium for me now, mm-hmm. which is you know 10, 10 best ways to to crush your JavaScript job in or job quiz yep. and and things like that. So um, it's certainly a hot topic that that um, I. I I wanted to see see uh, it was relevant to, to both of our timelines at the moment. Yeah. One question I have for you to to, to to bring this full circle. Have you had a bad hire? And if so, what part of your process do you think might have caught that? Or was there no way of catching that ahead of time? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, this is when I was at Horizon, I hired someone and I didn't ask them the right questions during the interview about what they wanted to do. Um, I knew like I, I, what I didn't think about at the time was again, empathy. This person needs a job. They're going to take your interview questions and bounce them, the answers back at you as to what they think you want to hear. Sure. And yes, it may doom them 
um, to say the wrong thing, but what I'm looking for is honesty. And I hired someone that said, oh, I'd love to do coding and computers and stuff like that, and I'll learn. And I was like, okay, I can teach someone this stuff. And this is like 15 years ago. So I definitely was not qualified to be teaching anyone anything about tech at that point. But um, there was there was no te- there was no technical test or coding quiz or whatever um, at that point because it was just more of I needed them to be maintaining Windows servers and stuff like that. But I basically I did not have the conversation with them about what that person was looking to do in a career beyond if they got hired. And it became pretty evident within a couple months. They didn't like tech. They didn't care. They, debugging and all that stuff frustrated them so much. They were the kind of person that didn't have any business working in computers. And right. after I let them go, they went straight to a non-tech job. And when I met them later, they're like, yeah, I didn't have, like, the computers are not for me. So that was a complete failure on my part to ask the right questions. Um, later on, I don't. I really haven't had a bad experience, and it's because of the amount of networking and getting to know people. And frankly, I call references. Like, I if someone gives me a reference, I call the reference. I don't. I feel like if someone gives me a reference, I can get five minutes with the person that they worked for to talk about what they've done. And. Right. I get so I get a lot of information really fast that tells me about what kind of person I would be hiring, and again, it's not it's not very fast. Um, uh, it doesn't it takes a lot of time to do that as a hiring manager, but I really feel like it's such a vital part of me building teams that I'm going to take that time, and yeah, and that's where again, I guess my my biggest concern. There's two issues that this whole thing wraps up into for me. One, I think a coding quiz for someone that builds stuff is a bit of an insult to that person. Um, it is to me. Sure. It is to me. There's no doubt. I'm not going to try to act like I don't get angered at the idea that I'm supposed to take this pop quiz when I've got working apps making money for companies that I've built. So, so yes, I definitely am like, this is, I have worked my way out of this process. And if you think I haven't, then go find somebody else. This is kind of my attitude. But on the flip side, it is, to me, I want the best, like if, I, if I'm going to spend this much time on, on working with, on candidates in terms of calling up references looking at their background and then talking to them for a good number of hours about what they've worked on. I want the best candidates in front of me. And if there's anyone else out there, as there are, as we can tell by the response in the marketplace of tech labor, I want developers that know I don't shouldn't have to do these tests. I have stuff to speak to that shows what I've worked on. And if I have a filter, this artificial time-saving feature for myself that blocks those types of developers from talking to me, I have put a barrier that is to my own detriment. It doesn't save me time because I'm going to pay the price of having a smaller labor pool to talk to. That's how I look at it, really. Um, Plus the fact that if I'm not going to take the test, I'm not going to turn around and make someone else take it. But... (laughs) 
that's just the hypocrisy radar on like for myself to, <laughs> to not do. And 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 I know I know enough of your history to know this is not the first time you've bristled at a at a, at a coding <laughs> test. Yes. Oh yeah. No doubt. Yeah. But yeah, between the two of us, a listener doesn't know, but yeah, this has come up before. <laughs> and I've failed. I've let's just. I guess I'll bring this up too. I have completely tanked a coding test handed to me by a big company for a very simple, it was like, I can't remember what I had to do with it. It was like taking a CSV file and merging it or something, something that I've done for multiple companies. But when I try to take the test, I had already gone through eight hours of some other code bases, major freak out issues. I was exhausted. My Wi-Fi went out that day, all these different scenarios about, why this was not an opportune time to take it, but I had committed to doing it for this potential job thing. And I completely bombed it to the point that I just didn't even turn it in. And then the company didn't want to talk to me. And I'm like, sure, that was fine. And in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't ever go through farther in the process with that company. But the idea that a CSV merging process that I have done multiple times the idea that that test of me doing it in a time-sensitive manner um, in f- like to prove I can do it versus, well, here, here's an actual project I did. It doesn't make, it's not logical to me because I'll right. ne- cause I'm never going to ask anyone on my team, do the CSV merge and do it in three hours or you don't have a job anymore. Like that's not how anybody's projects work at least they don't in in most companies that are have a healthy culture and that's where i think i have the biggest problem with it is you took a candidate who this company took me who i considered a decent candidate not that i'm the best fit for them and they filtered me out after having three interviews that we had a really good connection with their company values and what they needed And they filtered me out because I wasn't able at that moment to do a coding exercise that I have done multiple times in real life situations. And that to me is, there's the whole, I felt insulted side, but the other side was actually you guys are missing out on a, like if I'm not the only one that this has happened to, this company is missing out on talent that maybe doesn't have doesn't work well on a three like a a three or should I say a refined amount of time in a in a non productive environment. Um, sure, I mean I'm not sure I'm ex- if I'm saying that right. It doesn't map to what you are hiring that person to do, and I think it's just it's only to benefit the manager doing that filter game. And right. I, I don't think it actually gets the best people for most companies. Again, right. you can I be, a, you can be a big company with lots of resources and people will overlook it because, Hey, it's Google. I'll put up with it because if I get there, I'm made. You put Google on your resume, you can get jobs all over the place, but I don't think it works for everybody that way. If you put Google on your resume, you may not be, having to do any more coding quizzes in your career. Exactly. It might be the last one you have to do. (laughs) And I can understand. 
like that's reality. There's a whole idea of what I think is important and what the people paying the big bucks think is important. And I wouldn't tell anyone if, if one of my students came up to me today and said, so you don't like these coding quizzes, should I take with this one or should I, you know, forego any company that wants me to do it? The answer is who has the leverage? If you don't want to work for a company that much, then you get to set the terms for how you get hired. Not, not at all, or they can confine, they can go on your path or you follow their lead. And in this particular case, I'm talking about a couple of days ago, it's like, Hey, I've got, I've got stuff to work on for pet, for employment. I don't need your, your employment that bad. So in this case, if they don't, if they want me more, they need to kind of do a process that doesn't include these tests. But sure. on the on the flip side, if I'm looking for the work, if I need the work, or I want to work for that company, then and they are doing that type of process, then maybe you overlook that and and just kind of play along, and that's a choice that each person has to make. And right. I, I know the choice that I make, um, but I have an exper- I have enough experience to give me leverage in that case, and not everyone does. So that's where you have to right. make that choice, I think. Well, cool. No, this was, this was good. This is, this is topical and, and it, 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 it led to a, a pretty, uh, fiery discussion. I think. <laughs> so, um, I'm glad, I'm glad we, we had the circumstances come up to where we could use this one for, for this week. So have you ever, um, I'm just curious, have you ever taken a test for a job? <sighs> Let me think about that. I, the short answer is going to be no, because I have not been a so I've not been solely a developer in many a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most of my most of my jobs were project management jobs, um, technical manager jobs that did not require me to uh, be the senior developer. I was the technical manager. Yeah. Um, so I haven't had to face that. I'm trying to think back across the companies I've worked for as to whether they, they employed those practices. Um, and I'd say for the most part, uh, it was about 50, 50. Yeah. Um, even the most progressive guys I worked for that, that are, that are very intelligent thought they were modeling their business after Amazon, Google, Facebook by, by doing the quizzes. Yeah. Um, so that that's what happened there. Well, that's a different subject that we will have on this podcast because it comes up so much. Can your business afford to try and copy the big boys? Like that's that's what is um, it comes up in many different ways, and I think it's a to a detriment of companies that try to model themselves over what. The Facebooks, the Googles, the IBMs are trying to do, but that's for another day. Anyway, sure. let's go with recommendations. What do you got? All right. So what I've got for for this week is, is twofold. It's a book and a podcast. Um, so I've been following um, the the adventures, the tra- travels, the. Um, business dealings of Jason Calacanis, who is an angel investor. 
um, famous for invest being early on Uber, Thumbtack, a couple of unicorns. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he's got a, he's got a strong personality. So, so you have to take a lot of what he says with a grain of salt. And I know you and I differ on our views of, of, of Jason a bit. Yeah. Um, but I, I, he put out a book, um, called angel. Um, and it's about angel investing and how, how to get into angel investing. And he, he's really trying to push the barriers down to where you don't have to be a, a, a very rich individual to, in order to participate in angel investing. Um, I found, I found the book really interesting. I found it flawed in, in some ways. I thought it was, it only speaks to those people with available capital. Um, yeah. He did have a section in there about how you can be an angel investor and you invest your time and you're rewarded with shares. Okay, sure. I'm sure that happens somewhere, um, but I, I just don't see that happening a whole lot unless you unless you have a really high reputation. Yeah. And then then some of the other problems go away. But anyway, it's the the reason the book and especially the podcast speak to me is it it it's an incredibly interesting thing to do to be able to get into companies early and and see what they're doing and and if if you invest you to some degree will come in as an advisor as well at some level maybe not every day in the office, but maybe once a month having a quick check in and maybe they use you for your connections or for your industry knowledge or whatever. Yeah. Um, something I'm really interested in is getting involved in, in that startup space, right in that area, right in that pre-seed seed area. So the book's good. What is, what is phenomenal is the podcast. Um, the podcast is an, a, a series of interviews with other angel investors from various walks of life. Um, and and it's just it, it it really turns the knob as far as on me as far as really wanting to get involved and and I don't have the I don't have the available funds in yeah. order to 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 go out and and be a pure angel I can get in maybe on some syndicates and I, I did join Jason's syndicate and and the level of commitment there is just two thousand yeah. dollars for a very small piece but that's a, that that's accessible. Yeah. It's not twenty five thousand dollars. Two thousand is accessible. It would it would take a bite out of my checkbook, a pretty good sized bite out of my checkbook. Yeah. But it's accessible, and maybe that comes from savings or other things. But the 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 podcast is actually very aspirational as far as here's all the cool things that are going on, and here's all the cool things that are people involved in. And I'll take one more minute to talk about a very specific episode that just. Sure really, really got me fired up. Um, it was, um, it was one that was recorded just a couple weeks ago with, um, a VC by the name of Arlen Hamilton. Um, and Arlen ticks all the boxes as far as diversity. She's black, she's female, LGBTQ, um, checks all the boxes. And what she's done is she built a VC firm from scratch. Okay. She, she started all on her own. Um, and what she is after is she's after those underrepresented founders and underrepresented startups. Yeah. And 
that's that that's where this episode really took off is she sees those underrepresented um firms as missed potential by other VCs yep. meaning these companies are going to be as good as these overrepresented companies that you're backing mm-hmm. and he he tried to frame it <laughs> as okay so you're 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 doing this just to be diverse or you're doing this just to make sure these com- these communities are served and 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 it, there there was good tension there there wasn't arguing there was good tension about no that i truly believe these are going to be as good as the companies you're backing mm-hmm. um and it, it was it was real good to see somebody really challenge um because because he doesn't get challenged a lot on 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 his podcasts so yeah. it was it was good to see and and she was really inspiring so awesome. i actually follow, started following her podcast as well which is called the um the bootstrap vc and there's a couple good episodes on that as well so uh-huh. yeah. i gave you a bunch there so what what about you um, also on money, this is not management. It's a newsletter called Bloomberg View Money Stuff with Matt Levine. And it's an, it's not the type of newsletter that sends you a bunch of links. This is a daily or usually daily column that Matt Levine writes that looks at the everything from investing to the Federal Reserve to the markets, Wall Street, what have you. And he writes so clearly, and he is so cynical, which I love about, and the way he writes is sarcastic. And it basically goes through scenarios and boils them down into what's really going on and why, like what you should take away from it and how the market has responded in the past. And... I think it was recommended by a number of other, um, I guess, prominent business people that read his column daily. And I really found this to be a recommendation that from other people that I'm like, oh, yeah, this person writes about finance with exactly the snark and the I would say he's he doesn't seem to have um, an agenda um, other than to just say, here's what's really going on in these scenarios. Um, and so that's why I like it. So I, that's my recommendation for this week is I think he's worth a daily read if you find finance to be something that you like to hear it read about, but it's also hard to consume in other areas or especially you want something that's a little more moderate and seeing both sides. I feel like Levine does a good job with that. So that's my recommendation. Uh-huh. I'm gonna have to check that out because um, because I, I've it, we could we could get real deep on it and we're running long on time. But yeah. uh, based on a Michael Lewis book I, I read, um, author of The Big Short and Blindside yeah. and a few others, um, based on how the quants um, have taken over the, the stock market, yeah. um, that's made me really. Um, really disengage from the stock market as much as I can with, a, a, you know, just, uh, I'm not going to try pick individual stocks anymore because it seems yep. to not matter anymore. So I'll, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll be following that up. I am an index guy now as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> after I read, was it fast boys? Is that the name of the book? That's the name of it. Yeah. I, I was yeah, trying to read. Google it real quick. 
After reading that, I'm like, I don't stand a chance. I'm not going to put my laptop next to a pipe going to New- to Wall Street to make a trade. Um, I'm out of this game. Hello, yeah. Van- Fla- Hello Vanguard. <laughs> Flash Boys was the name of the book. Flash Boys, so, yes. Flash Boys. Yeah. So that's another pick. You get a bonus pick this week. <laughs> Lots of picks. Uh-oh. Lots of links in the show notes. <laughs> so so everybody's homework is to go run and, and do a bunch of reading. So, uh, All right. So what's, what's on deck for th- this week? Uh, this week, pretty much still more of the maintenance and code. Um, but I think what we're aiming to do is an on-site from Orlando, not live, because we're never going to do a live show that I can think of. But <laughs> I'm going to be in Orlando in your neck of the woods, and I think we can do an episode face-to-face. Yeah, yeah, that, that's coming up. That's coming up for the next episode, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Maybe we'll trade blows during it. We'll, we'll find some contentious topic. Can we get, is it Donald Duck's father that's the has all the money? Scrooge McDuck, Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck is is Donald Duck's uncle. Okay, I want we'll, we're going to get him on the podcast if we can. That's, that's <laughs> All, All right, right. And that that's what we're both looking forward to. So, <laughs> um, so that's what's coming up in the next week. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Randy, and we'll see you when you get down here. Yep. See you soon. Later. Thanks for listening to the CTO Think podcast. Show notes and previous episodes can be found on our website at ctothink.com. Reviews on Apple iTunes are always appreciated and help promote the show. Patreon contributions help us to produce episode transcripts, which allow people that are deaf or hard of hearing to access the show. If you have feedback, ideas, or want to be a guest, please email us at hello at ctothink.com. Show music is Dumpster Dive by Mark Wallach, licensed by premiumbeat.com. Voiceover work by meganvoices.com. You'll hear from us next week.